0: If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 18. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We ended in verse 14 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 27 this morning. If you you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. Feel free to open it up. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you need a Bible, we've got plenty out there in the North X on the way out on the right-hand side, Little, there's some blue ESV Bibles. Please take one of those and write your name in it and take it home with you. If you have no idea where John is, we're in the New Testament, so go to the middle of the Bible, start turning to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and then look for the big number 18. That'll be the chapter that we're in, and look for the little number 15. That's the verse that we'll be looking at and starting in this morning. Again, if you have no idea how to find things in the Bible, that's how we find it. And so while you're open up to John 18, 15 to 27, the verses that we're going to be in this morning, in 1967, a movie came out called A Guide for the Married Man. I would not recommend it, but there was a phrase that came out of that movie that has worked its way into kind of modern politics and today's culture, music, etc. And the phrase is, even when you are confronted with overwhelming evidence of your guilt, deny deny, deny, that was the phrase that has worked its way in. Even when confronted with your guilt, even when you know that you've been caught red-handed, deny, deny, deny. We're even seeing that play out in the political sphere as we speak. We see it constantly in our world when when confronted with with sin, when confronted with the ways that we've messed up. Just deny it, just keep denying it to your dying breath. Deny, deny, deny. In an episode of Gray's Anatomy with that title, Deny, 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 here's what the character Meredith Gray said, and she was talking about how we navigate the world by denial. She said, We we only see what we want to see and believe what we want to believe, and it works. We lie to ourselves so much that after a while the lie starts to seem like the truth. We deny so much that we can't recognize the truth right in front of our faces. This life of denial and what it leads to. And the reason that this phrase has, has stuck around in modern culture is because it's something that we've all experienced. Regardless of your age, when you're confronted with your sin, what do we do? We deny it. Said, no, that wasn't me, or we blame it on something else. We we just deny it. We see it in politicians when they're caught in a lie or marital infidelity. We see that with celebrities and whoever else. We see it in our own selves. We even see it in little kids when they get caught. You may have seen these videos that are kind of floating around on YouTube and TikTok of a mom will come in and see her little one who's there has chocolate smeared all over his face. And she comes up and asks, did you eat that candy that I told you not to touch? And what does the kid say straight away? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Denying it straight to her face face covered with chocolate. He says, no, I have no idea. Deny, deny, deny. You think when confronted with our sin, we feel like we're about to get in trouble. Our default setting is to deny. We don't have to learn how to do this. We come pre-wired to do it. You see that even in the little kids. Why? It's a product of the fall. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3. Blame-shifting, where, where Adam and Eve, they start throwing each other under the bus and they're blame-shifting, which all that is is personal denial by pinning the guilt on someone else. That's all blame-shifting is. I didn't do it. It's their fault. We see it all the way back, in a page and a half in the Bible. Denial is, a, is just a tool we employ to save face. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. Now imagine, after spending several years in public ministry with Jesus, When confronted, denying it, saying, I don't know him, when confronted with that. Even after you've walked the streets and you've seen him perform all these things and you've walked on water, even denying that, no, I I have no idea who you're talking about. That's what Peter did when confronted, deny, deny, deny. But I want us to ask the question this morning as we read this text, how does the denial of Peter actually help us understand the gospel in a deeper way? Where's the good news in the midst of it? Let's find out this morning. Let's look at John 18 starting in verse 15 and we'll read to verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it by faith. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we consider his text. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. and Lord, we pray that as we consider it, Holy Spirit, please be at work in our hearts. Take these words, apply them to our hearts and our lives. Change us in some small way by the work of your Spirit. Convict us, challenge us, help us to see more of Jesus. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we consider this text this morning, have you ever, have you ever done or said something so terrible that you actually had a moment of clarity immediately after the fact and you thought, What have I done? Why did I say that? Why did I do it? You, you've done it you you realize that those words may cut so deeply or what you did was just so dumb that you had this moment of clarity right after it and you went oh no what did I say? what have I done? We've all had moments like that that in the heat of the moment you say something mean but you immediately regret it. We've all experienced moments of guilt and shame and despair in our lives it's part of a our universal condition as humans of living in a fallen world. And we all share these feelings. We know exactly what that feels like. When I say guilt and shame, you know exactly what those words feel like. And so because of this universal struggle, one of the major questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what do I do with my guilt and shame? What do I do with it? How do I cover it? How do I get rid of it? What do I do with these feelings that I feel, these feelings of guilt and shame? Where where do I take them? What do I do with them? And this morning, we're looking at a scene that is absolutely swamped in betrayal, guilt, and shame. Remember, Peter was one of the first disciples called by Jesus verbally. We see that back in John 1. He had traveled with Jesus, he had seen him perform miracles, he'd heard him teach. He had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He also, when asked, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter. Mark records that Peter was with James and John when Jesus was transfigured and shone like the sun. And it was Peter who urged Jesus to let us set up tents so we can just dwell here forever. Lord, can we please just stay here? It was Peter who said he was willing to die for Jesus in John 13, 37. It says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus responded to Peter's gusto by saying that he would later deny him in the very next verse, in verse 38, right after Peter's confession, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus asked, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, I'm sure Peter thought Jesus was mistaken when he uttered that prophecy. He was like, what is this guy talking about? Not me. It can't be me. He can't be talking about me. But it was only after the rooster crowed that Peter asked the question that we all have asked, what have I done? What have I done? This moment of clarity, here's the rooster crow and he goes back, oh, what have I done? Here's what Andreas Kostenberger said. He said, Peter's denial of Jesus stands as one of the most poignant and memorable events that transpired during Jesus' final day. Pathos drips from the gospel accounts, the tragedy is palpable, and Peter leaves a broken man. But even as we consider this text, and we consider what's going on here in the life of Peter and what has just happened, we still, again, need to be reminded that Jesus was in complete control of the entire situation. And the good news for us this morning is that he was not finished with Peter. This was not the end of Peter's story. And today, what I want to do is I want to examine the contrast between fickle Peter and faithful Jesus. Those are the two points. We're going to look at the fickleness of Peter... And we're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus. And so you might be asking, what in the world does that word fickle mean? Here's how Webster's Dictionary defines it. It's an adjective. Changing frequently, especially as regards to one's loyalties, interests, or affections. That's what fickle means. Changing frequently, especially as regards to one's loyalties, interests, and affection. So you can imagine fickle Peter. Here we see that right now. That's a good description of Peter. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's a good description of us as well. Here's what Sproul said. He said, we're like Peter. In the flesh, we all are groupies. We love to get close to the rich and famous, to those who are in positions of power and of adulation. However, we're like Peter in another way. When those we idolize fall, we run for cover. When our heroes come under criticism, we no longer want to be identified with them at all. Think about the fickleness that we all have in our own hearts. We see it in the church, politics, business, our relationships, sports, etc. I saw a guy the Super Bowl the other day. He's dressed in his full Bengals gear. And there's a video of him after the Bengals lose the Super Bowl, him ripping the TV out of the wall walking down about four flights of stairs so it you know he was committed goes out into the street throws his flat screen tv into the road and starts jumping up and down on it while wearing Bengals gear and swearing off his team i will never cheer for them again just the picture of fickleness in an instant this this team that you had been rooting for just in an instant when they let you down you turn on them and you swear them off forever You think, oh, I've never done anything like that. (laughs) Yes, you have. So when we think about this, it's really not that hard to identify with Peter in this moment, is it? As the pressure has been building, think about last week, what we looked at, verses 1 through 14, this group of Pharisees, these religious leaders with such great clout, along with temple police, and Roman soldiers, and Judas the betrayer coming along with you, this kind of ungodly mob, as one commentator said. They showed up, they bound, and they arrested Jesus, and then they go to Annas, a guy who had great clout in the area. They take Jesus, bound up, and you're kind of just on the side just watching all of this happen. And they go straight away to Annas, We're reminded that Annas had been deposed by the Romans and his son-in-law was technically the high priest. But this is where the Pharisees come in. See, even though Annas was not technically the high priest and he had been deposed by the Romans and Caiaphas was there, to the Jews and to the Pharisees, Annas was still, they didn't care what Rome said, Annas was still the high priest in their eyes. He was the guy that was going to serve until he died and so they go to him. They saw him as the real high priest. They saw him as the real authority. And look at what happens as our narrative opens this morning in verse 15. Peter, and who many commentators think was John. John was with him, as John describes himself in kind of this third person, kind of aloof way throughout the gospel. Many commentators think it was him. They follow the conspirators into the night, and they end up in the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 16. The once bold Peter who had just, just an instant ago, cut off Malchus's ear in bold defense of Jesus now hides in the shadows just outside the door. There's a good deal of evidence pointing to the fact that John was a member of the priestly group within the Sanhedrin similar to kind of like the religious senate of our days, this kind of close-knit group, Congress, you know, these folks that came and they got together and made decisions. And so many commentators think that he already had access to this courtyard. This was a place that you couldn't just walk up and knock on the door and they let you in. You had to get through kind of the the layers of security that were there. And what we see is many commentators think it was John. They see John vouch for Peter. And he gets entrance into this courtyard on the good word of John. Look at verse 17. This unnamed servant girl who was tasked with watching the door, kind of like a, a bouncer or a, a, a gatekeeper, like you can get in or, you know, that was, that was her job. She notices Peter when he came through and asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples. And do you remember what Jesus said when that band of thugs came to arrest him last week? They said, we're searching for Jesus of Nazareth. And how does Jesus respond? I am. I'm he. I am he. Remember, they fall on the ground. Now, Jesus responds with three affirmations. We see that in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. There are these times we're looking for Jesus. He said, that's me. I am he. I am. Peter will respond with three denials. In sharp contrast, fickle Peter responds to the question with, I am not. So we see Jesus three times. I am he. That's me. Peter responds, complete opposite, I am not, three times. What we see here in verse 17, he gets asked that question, aren't you, didn't, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Denial number one, I'm not, no I'm not. Look at verse 18, as Peter tries to hide in the shadows on the edge of the courtyard, again, it was the middle of the night, and you can almost see Peter like lurking just outside the flicker of the firelight, He's kind of hanging over here in the shadows because he's already been noticed and he hopes to not be noticed again. Here's what Sproul said about this, particularly in John's gospel. He said, this little detail is significant for John's account of the trial of Jesus because it points out that these events took place at night. And this calls attention to the illegality of this trial, which should not have been held in the middle of the night. And again, Jesus gets arrested. He gets carted off. There's this trial that's done in secret. He's being examined in secret. And again, John is just adding weight to this. In the ancient Near East, they would have known this and been like, what is going on here? It's a kangaroo court. Look at verse 19. Annas then gave a theological exam to Jesus to make him defend his teaching. Think about that. You are giving a theological exam to the Son of God to his face. Tell me what you are teaching and let's see if this, is in, if this is correct according to the word of God. Now we know from John chapter 1, his prologue, that the word was with God and the word was God. And he came, the word came and dwelt among us. Jesus is that word incarnate. And the irony here is rich. He's being theologically examined right in front. And he knows all the answers In the ancient Near East, guilt and innocence was based on, witness te- on, on eyewitness testimony. And the person on trial was never required to testify or answer questions. Again, we see how corrupt this is. Where are the witnesses? There aren't any. They just immediately start questioning Jesus. Now in verses 20 to 24, I want to round back to these in just a minute. But for the focus, I want to just, let's just keep tracking with Peter here. So look at verse 25. We're going to go back to those verses in a minute. In verse 25, we return to the fire, and some of the other servants also recognize Peter. Now remember, Jesus had gained notoriety, especially among those marginalized in society, and the word had traveled fast about both Jesus and his disciples. And this is why the Pharisees felt so threatened by Jesus. He was stealing their thunder. People had heard about this guy Jesus and his disciples, and word had kind of spread. I mean, imagine that going on in our little town right now. Everybody would know who he is, what he looked like, and all the people who were hanging out with him by the end of the first day. The news would have just gone out. And so what we have here is, again, Peter responds when questioned. He says, I'm not. That's denial number two. And Matthew includes that Peter denied with an oath, swearing that he is being truthful despite being caught in a lie. He doubles down. He says, no, I promise you, I swear to you, I'm not one of his disciples. The intensity is building. John, verse 26, I don't know if you picked up on this. We see Peter just getting caught in the weeds. He's just, it's just getting worse as it goes along. And if you didn't pick up on that little detail, John adds this extra detail just to show us how deep in the weeds Peter was at this moment. Because one of Malchus' relatives is there too. You know, the guy that he just cut his ear off? He's there too. And he claims to have seen Peter in the garden not too long ago. He's like, weren't, didn't I just see you in the garden? Weren't you the guy that just cut Malchus's ear off? You see how, again, the weight of his denial. When confronted with all of this evidence, aren't you associated with Jesus? What does Peter do? Deny, 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 despite how bad it looks. Again, this is now eyewitness testimony. You're wondering, where are the witnesses? Here you go. And who is that witness bearing witness against? Peter, the one who is denying. He says, I saw you, didn't I? I saw this man. And he says, no, you didn't. I'm not. And we see denial number three. And right on cue, according to the sovereignty of God, the rooster crows, Peter realizes what he's done, and it's like a punch in the gut. And what we see is Peter the rock crumble to sand. Just like that. What have I done? Mark records that Peter broke down and wept. It's hard to read about Peter's denial because we all know that we have done the exact same thing. We've all denied Christ at some point. We either denied him prior to our conversion or we've denied being a Christian at some point when the social and political pressure has been too great. We're all all like Peter. Peter. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside everyone to his own way. That's you and that's me. Now this is the point where many of you would expect me to hammer you over the head and tell you to stop being like Peter and make you feel guilty. And that point's not coming. You know why? Because I'm just as guilty of it as you are and that would make me a hypocrite. I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I, too, am a sheep who has turned aside to his own way. We all need a shepherd. I need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. This is a call to look to Jesus, to trust his mercy, to repent over and over and over and over again. We return to the shepherd of our soul. If you are here and you do not trust Christ this morning as we consider this text, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know something. Please know that we as Christians do not think that we're better than you. Far from it. Actually, our first membership vow to join a church, one of the things you have to admit early on is, I am a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. I'm a bad person. We don't think that we're better than you. But as you're here and you're considering Jesus and you're considering what's going on here, please know that we as Christians have a place to take our guilt and shame. We've got a safe place to leave it, and that is at the foot of the cross with our Savior who has shown us mercy and forgiveness. And our prayer is that you would look to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Again, Sproul was asking, he was asked, like, what's one of the biggest things that, that, that non-Christians have to, to ask and to wrestle with? And he said, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? Where do you take moments like this, like Peter, when you feel like you've just been socked right in the stomach? Where do we we go? Where do we take it? As Christians, we take it to the Lord. And we leave it at His His cross and we trust in Him because why? We're all fickle and faint of heart. We may not have heard the rooster crow, but we know what that gut gut punch of shame feels like. Oh, but there's hope. There's hope in Christ Christ. Before you lose despair, there's hope in Christ. We've just looked at fickle Peter. We're like, we're just like him. But now I want us to look and turn and look at faithful Jesus in the midst of this. That's our second point, the faithfulness of Jesus, which will be shorter than the first, I promise. Look back at verses 20 to 24 again as Jesus receives, ironically, this theological exam. He's being called on the carpet. Verse 20, Annas is looking to trap Jesus by showing him to be subversive and guilty of double speak. I found a quote in uh, James Hamilton Jr.'s commentary that I thought was great because it sounds like something I would say. He said, Annas is fishing, but there are no fish in that pond. It's like, sounds like something I would say. So here you see Annas trying to trap Jesus. You see the Pharisees throughout the gospel, they're constantly trying to do an end around Jesus and catch him in blasphemy or in error. And they constantly come up short. Here we see it again. In verse 21, Jesus asked Annas for something. He asked for witnesses. Bring, who have you heard that's saying this? He's asking for witness testimony. And Jesus again exposes Annas' attempt to conduct an illegal trial without witnesses or charges. And look at verse 22 as we move forward here. Verse 22 says, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Some minor official here in the court, probably trying to score points with Annas, took umbrage with Jesus' question and slapped him. And the Greek word here is rapsima, which is a sharp blow with the flat of a hand. This is a, this is a slap. He slaps Jesus in disrespect. How dare you? How dare you speak to the high priest in that way? You just just see what's going on here and how they're dealing with Jesus. And you're like, how in the world? What is Jesus going to do? He responds in verse 23. Look at what he does. He's just been slapped. And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus doesn't back down. He basically says, if what I said is untrue, then bring formal charges. He's asking again for a fair trial and he's calling them out in their illegality. Verse 24, Annas realizes this is a hopeless endeavor. He sends him bound to Caiaphas so that he could, quote-unquote, officially bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Interestingly enough, Jesus will later be charged with a political crime, not a theological error. They're examining him. They can't find anything wrong. So they find anything and everything, that they, any little thing that they can charge Jesus with. And we'll see that as we move forward. Jesus knows full well that his words to Annas will result in his death. He knows full well that one of his closest friends just denied him three times within earshot. He knows full well that the Pharisees, his own kinsmen, are hell-bent on his utter destruction and that they are in league with the devil. He has already said that. But it is the Father's will that he should die. And aren't you thankful for the passive obedience of Christ? That he was obedient to the Father's will. That he submitted himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And obeyed the law's demands perfectly, his active obedience. We talked about that a little bit last week. In contrast with Peter, Jesus never crumbles. Why? Because he is the true, he is the chief cornerstone. He's the true rock and he never crumbles. In contrast with Peter, Jesus never denies knowing Peter. And here's why. He's not finished with him yet. So let's talk about some application. Why should we care about what we just see with Peter? As we've already talked about, Peter's story is our story. We're all fickle. We all sin against the one who truly loves us. We've confessed that already and sung about it. Lord, I am evil born in sin. I know that you love me, and, but I'm, I'm so fickle in heart. I turn from you at a moment's notice. Peter's story is our story. We love our sin, and we're willing to temporarily disassociate from Jesus to stay in it. When pressure mounts, we all give in. You think about those moments where you like, I like, I know that what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say is sinful. And what we do is we're so fickle we temporarily disassociate ourselves from Jesus. We pretend that he doesn't see us, we pretend that he doesn't know. Why? Because I want to do it. I want what I want when I want it. That's <laughs> the heart of sin. And we temporarily disassociate ourselves from Jesus. And we presume upon his grace. We presume upon his mercy. And we, but we act in those moments like he doesn't even exist. When pressure mounts, we all give in. But this is not how Peter's story ended, and it's not how ours ends either. I mean, think about what happens here. After the rooster crowed, Peter kind of fades into the background of John's gospel during the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. But then he reappears. And do you know where he reappears in the narrative? At the mouth of the empty tomb. That's where we see Peter again. Later, Jesus will appear to his disciples as they huddled in fear. Remember, Jesus has just been put in the tomb and his disciples are huddled in secret hoping that the pharisees and the roman guards and all these other people they're hoping that they're not found out and what happens jesus shows up but in the moment they had all abandoned jesus they had all left him alone to die on the cross and jesus comes to them and what does jesus say to them when he appears to them you know what he says he doesn't say how could you how dare you you know what he says Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's what he says. Instead of a rebuke, he offers reconciliation. He offers grace. Why? Colossians 2 tells us that he, Jesus, made peace by the blood of his cross. That at the cross it actually accomplished something. So Jesus can come and say, Peace be with you. I purchased it, it's finished. Here's what the Gospel Reformation Study Bible says. If you don't catch anything else, please hear this. It says, our sins do not separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus separates us from the love of our sin and from sin's guilt and power. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus will be answered in time by Jesus' threefold restoration of Peter. Peter. And you think about this in the life of Peter. From that point forward, Peter was never the same after Jesus restored him. He went from full of shame to full of the Spirit. Acts chapter 4, verse 3, Peter and John will will also be arrested by the temple guards. They'll also be put on trial before the powerful Sanhedrin after Peter heals a man lame from birth. And you know what Peter says after being seized and taken before? Just like Jesus. You know what Peter says? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about what has happened. Peter's life looks like a bee. He goes from I will die for you Lord and I will defend you to the depths of shame. And back up again confident in the love of Christ Because Jesus has restored him and showed him grace. And that's our story. What gave Peter such boldness? What gave him hope in the years ahead as he preached the gospel? And he was martyred, crucified. Many think upside down because he felt unworthy to be killed in the same way that Jesus did. He was crucified and martyred by Nero. What gave him hope in the midst of that? What allowed him to be faithful to the end? the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this, my friends, is exactly what gives us hope too. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our effort. It's in Christ and His Spirit. Don't believe me? Romans 5, 1-5. Almost done. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, peace be with you. Paul says, we've got that peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the grounds of our confidence. This peace that's been purchased through the blood of God. Of the cross of Christ Romans 8 16 to 17 why should we care in the midst of our shame the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him so what's the call what's the takeaway in the midst of your shame In the midst of your guilt, in the midst of your difficult circumstances, in the midst of your own struggle with sin and doubt and feeling your own weakness, in the midst of that, what's the call when you feel the fickleness in your own heart? What's the call? Look to faithful Jesus. Look to Christ. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Take your guilt and shame to the foot of the cross and leave it there. Why? Because we trust and rest in Christ's words when he said, It is finished. And it's done. And we rest in that grace. And it gives us confidence. Despite what pressure may come. Despite the circumstances that come. Who is faithful to the end? Jesus is faithful. Always faithful. Forever and ever and ever faithful. Faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the midst of our fickle hearts, in the midst of all the ways that we have denied you, we feel this guilt and shame in our hearts, O Lord. You're faithful to us to the very end. And I pray, O Lord, if there are any here who are gathered who do not know you, Lord, even as they wrestle with shame and guilt that we all wrestle with, we all feel like, Something's just out of joint. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would help them to see the beauty and loveliness of Christ and what he has accomplished and secured for his people on the cross. Lord, help us to take our guilt and our shame and to leave it with you. Help us to trust you, O Lord. And Father, as we all know the feeling that Peter felt, what have I done? We look to what you have done on the cross on our behalf, securing our way back to the father and lord we are grateful that you were faithful to the end when examined when slapped in the face when treated with such disrespect you were obedient to the will of the father to the very end because you knew O oh lord that it was only through your death on the cross that we could be redeemed and rescued so lord thank you that you were faithful to the end lord we pray that we would continue to bring all of our praise and worship before you and thank you for all that you've done on our behalf. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Amen.